Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And welcome to all of you. So good we can share this day together in the Word and fellowship in the truths of the Gospel. Encourage one another and, and be in prayer as well. Would you stand with me one more time? Let's read this text together. We've been working on this text now uh, for a few weeks, and this morning we come to our our final session, Lord willing, in this text together. 1 Timothy 5, 17-25. Join me. Let's read this together. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray together. Father, as we come again to Your Word, we confess that we desire for You to shape us, to shape our church, to provide for us the elders that You have appointed, and that You would open our eyes, that You would enable us to see whom You have chosen, that we may honor them rightly. Father, teach us these things. Use this text to to shape our desires and and, and to give us skill so that we may bring glory to You. Father, this is Your church. The Son, Jesus Christ, gave His life and shed His blood to pay for us. We belong to You. We belong to Him and we joyfully submit ourselves to You. Thank You for Your Word. It is Your inspired, inerrant, authoritative, all-sufficient Word. And we want to give ourselves over to it completely. And we do so with joy because You've given to us a new heart with new affections. Father, we're so thankful that even as we fall short so often, that we do have Your righteousness. That You are our defense. That we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Father, we are learning to rest in Him more and more. To bring our fears to Him to bring our sin struggles to Him, to bring our, our pride to Him. Father, we ask You to continue to work in our hearts and may we truly understand that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This morning we come to the final section of Paul's instruction about building and maintaining a biblical eldership. Uh, next week, by the way, we're planning to uh, enjoy a heightened emphasis together on the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And for those celebrations, we're going to study Romans 6, uh, just the first part of Romans 6 uh, on Good Friday, and then Romans 7, first part of Romans 7 on, on Resurrection Sunday. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that together with you, and I, I trust it'll be a really edifying time for all of us in the book of Romans. Uh, the Sunday after that, Lord willing, we are planning to begin the study of the final chapter of 1 Timothy, which is chapter 6. And that addresses many different themes, such as a biblical work, work ethic and how that brings about the influence of Christ in the world. Also, identifying false teachers, the dangers of loving money, fighting the good fight of the faith, handling wealth for God's glory, and then guarding the gospel. So there's a lot of themes packed into 1 Timothy chapter 6 that I think will be edifying to all of us. Now, as we come to our text this morning, I would like to introduce this final section of 1 Timothy 5 by addressing some important questions that uh, we, we, we came to discuss last week after service and during. You remember during the sermon I said, now here's the question that is the most difficult to answer in this text. How do you come by two witnesses or three as you then approach an elder to confront him about his sin? And so that's what this text has been about. Uh, the first part of it, 17 and 18, about honoring an elder. And then 19 through 21, about rebuking a sinning elder. And then this morning, of course, we'll talk about affirming a prospective elder. But let's remember for just a moment last week how to rebuke an elder. And we'll try to answer some questions. Remember how Paul com- commanded Timothy, only admit, well, I'll just look back at those verses, only admit a charge against a sinning elder except on the evidences of how many? Right? Two or three witnesses. And then we look to the text, and after two or three witnesses have offered their testimony, and after adequate investigation by the other elders has been made, and if that accused elder has been found to be sinning, then he is rebuked publicly. You can see that in verse 20. Rebuke them in the presence of all. And then Paul reminds Timothy to carry out these rules and to do so without prejudging, right? And to do them without partiality because he's doing all of these things in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Now the main question that arose from this text was how does a church member find another witness or two, so that his or her accusation might be admitted, right? Admitting a charge, you got to have two or three. Well, how do you get two or three people together without gossiping in the church, creating slander and creating division? How do you do that? And that's why that question is very important, and I want to take a few moments to address it again, is because we want to be obedient to this text. We want to protect the eldership of a church or our church if they're qualified, but we also want to protect the eldership from disqualified men for continuing in the ministry. That makes sense, right? Very, very important. This text has incredible bearing on the purity of the church and the gospel being proclaimed from that church. So how does a member who has a legitimate accusation find another witness or two without slandering uh, the eldership among the other members? So my answer to that during last week was the first thing to be done is to pray, right? And ask the Lord to give wisdom in the process to provide for you the right people to come in contact with you 
and that you could discern what God is doing and, and, and to maintain a biblical eldership. But I think there's another part to answer. I was talking with Jeremy afterwards, and I think some others of you had some conversation about it, which was excellent, very helpful. That's, that's part of what God does in the body of Christ. When you fellowship together, you, you grow to understand the Word of God better. So, so I think this is a good answer and something for you to consider. I believe that this text, 1 Timothy 5, 19-21, should be taken inside the broader passage or process of church discipline that we see in Matthew 18. And one of one of reason this seems to be so is because in verse 19, you see the wording that appears to allude to Matthew 18. It says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses is how you bring, bring an accusation. And that language connects it logically with Matthew 18.16, which says basically the same thing. So if that's done, then the steps of Matthew eight and the and the steps of Matthew eighteen are followed. There will then naturally be two or three witnesses for the First Timothy five process. Let me show you this. I don't know if you can see that. The word's too small. I can maybe I don't know if this will let me zoom in or not. But let's see. All right. Yeah, good. It does it up there. Okay. So let's let's play this out really quick, and then we'll get back to the text. Member observes sin in the life of an elder. Matthew 18. An elder, an elder or any member, right? What does he do? The member then goes to the elder and confronts the sin one-on-one, just like Matthew 18 says. Okay. Now, hopefully that conversation, just that one-on-one private conversation will go very well. And so here's what could happen. If the elder is cleared, because you could, you could possibly imagine the elder explaining the situation and saying, you know, and, and, the, and the member who confronts him is, oh yeah, that makes sense, I'm sorry, I didn't see that right. The elder is cleared or repents of the sin, a sin that does not disqualify him. For example, if maybe an elder says a, a harsh word to, to someone else in the church and that person's been hurt and they go to that person, or the other, to the elder and says, you know, you were sinful in how you responded to me. Will you... Will, do you understand? You hurt me. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't. I, please do forgive me. Well, that wouldn't disqualify the elder, right? But that could be made right. And so he continues as an elder. Now, think of it on another option. If the elder repents, but the sin to us disqualifies, and we look at what sins would disqualify by the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, he, if he's repentant, will bring certainly bring his sin before the other elders and resign his office publicly. That would be the fulfillment of his repentance. But, there is the option, the, the opportunity that a member goes to an elder and confronts sin one-on-one. And what if the elder's not cleared? And what if the elder does not repent? Then the member goes to the elder again as Matthew 18 instructs, with another witness or two. And that makes sense, perfectly fitting with Matthew 18, and confronts the sin again. Okay, if the elder is not cleared or does not repent, then the two or three witnesses come before the other qualified elder or elders and make their charge. Now you have those two witnesses brought to 1 Timothy 5. Now now here's where 1 Timothy 5 begins. It's set kind of inside Matthew 18. 
So they make the charge. Well, okay, if the elder is found to be clear following the investigation by the other elders, then the charge would be dropped and the elder would continue to serve. But if the elder is found to be guilty following the investigation, then the elder is rebuked before the church and he's removed from his office because he is also disqualified. And why do I say that? If he's found to be guilty this far into the process, he will be disqualified because he will no longer be blameless, for one, at the most simple level, but certainly his sin would probably disqualify him as well. And then, there's two options at the end of that. We would hope that the elder repents, and then he would be restored to fellowship and discipleship, but not the office of the elder. That would be the ideal outcome, that he would continue to live and be discipled and grow and be restored in the body that knows Him and loves Him. And then, the other option may happen. If the elder does not repent, then he will be removed from church membership and pursued by the church as a rebel, just like Matthew 18, the final steps talk about. Now, when we put those two texts together, that makes sense to me. I hope that helps you. And I'm not going to spend much more time on this. But if you have continued questions about this, please, let's... Let's do talk about this because it's very important to the Apostle Paul and to our life in the body of Christ. Now this final section of 1 Timothy 5 addresses how we are to affirm prospective elders. This is the last part. How to affirm prospective elders. And it contains some excellent wisdom to guide us in that process. Do you remember how the chapter on elder and qualifications begins in 1 Timothy 3? Remember that text? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder, he desires a noble task. So what if somebody in our local body truly desires, a man desires, the office of an elder? Well, that's a good thing. That shouldn't just be ignored. But it's at that point that the Apostle Paul calls the current elders and the membership to be very patient and discerning as they evaluate those men who desire the office of elder. So here's the main idea for this morning. Do not be hasty to affirm a prospective elder. There it is, right at the beginning of verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Paul gives us two arguments and, some, and, and a piece of practical advice as he argues to us why. He's answering the question, why? Why are we to avoid haste in the affirmation of a prospective elder? Why? Number one, and you can follow along in your outline, in your, in your bulletin as well, because of shared responsibility. Let's read, I'll read verse 22 for you again. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. First of all, affirmation without process can result in shared responsibility for sin. That is a serious statement, isn't it? Affirmation, meaning the affirmation of, a, of an aspiring elder, without the process of evaluation and discernment, can result in a shared responsibility for sin. What does Paul mean when he says, laying on of hands? Well, he's referring to ordination. Affirmation for ministry. 
And we see that in texts such as 1 Timothy 4.14 or 2 Timothy 1.6. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Do not neglect the gift you have, Paul's talking to Timothy, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. It's, that's a New Testament precedent. A visual um, expression of identification and blessing and fellowship is when we lay hands on a man and affirm him as an elder. And of course, 2 Timothy 1.6 talks about that. And there's a couple examples of that laid out for us in Acts 6, 1-6, as well as Acts 13.3. It's the public method of identifying a man who is qualified for ministry or eldership and affirming his character, affirming his doctrine, his giftedness, his skill, bringing him into fellowship or unity and sharing solidarity with the other elders. Now, Paul is, is teaching us here that that must be done with great patience. With great care. Discernment. Don't do this quickly. And we take this for ourselves. We mustn't do this quickly. Mustn't do this in a hurry. Don't be hasty and then forego the biblical process of evaluating a man for ministry. He must not be new to Christ. The qualifications tell us that, not a novice, right? He must certainly not be new to the church. And he must not be new to the elders. Sometimes a local church may depend upon another trusted local church to evaluate a man for them, for their eldership. But a local church and its elders must evaluate a man and do so patiently, carefully, with biblical discernment. Even if we think we know a guy pretty well, he must still be evaluated by the church and its elders under the light of the scriptural qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3 and subject himself to that process. And again, there's serious reason for doing this. Just like Paul says, if, if a church and its current elders forego the process or rush through it in haste and ordain a man without proper evaluation and that man is exposed in his sinfulness, and shown to be disqualified after he has been affirmed, then those who affirmed him and called him into that fellowship of ministry without diligent evaluation will end up, and here's the word Paul uses, very interesting, will end up fellowshipping with him in his sin. Notice, take part. You know what that word is in the original language? It's that well-known word that we use for fellowship. Koinonia. We fellowship with Him in His sin. Take part. Share. Partner. Associate. Those who affirm Him become responsible for His sinfulness and in entering the, disciple, the eldership and really, think of it this way, culpable for the damage of His sinfulness upon the local church. Let that sink in. That is serious responsibility for us, isn't it? We don't want that. So let's be careful we don't press this too far now. I want to kind of backpedal just a little bit. Sharing the guilt of another's elder's sin does not come if the evaluation was proper and a biblical process. If we, if we go through it, if we're not in haste, if God enables us to go through the process and an elder still 
um, shows himself sinful, well, we did everything we could by the grace of God. There's no culpability there. But sharing in guilt does come when the process has been shirked and the man has not been carefully examined. Therefore, we are compelled by God's Word along with Timothy, along with the Ephesian church, don't be hasty in the evaluation process of a prospective elder. So then as we evaluate men for ministry, Paul says, keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. Remain honorable is what Paul means. Maintain uprightness in the sense of taking every pain to avoid affirming an unqualified man of the eldership by being hasty in the process of evaluation, sharing in his sin and his damaging effect on the local church. Be patient, careful, discerning with the goal of purity. This must be a huge priority for us. It's important to the reputation of Christ in our community, isn't it? How many stories have you heard over the years of elders in local churches in our community who have proven themselves unqualified and hurt so many people, led so many people? I've heard stories from you. And when I hear those stories, I think, God, please, don't let me discourage these brothers and sisters like other men have. Please don't. And that's an important impetus as we consider ordaining, ordaining other men as well. We're called, Paul is teaching us here how to avoid the situation of verses 19 and 21 by following this process. The thing is, is so many local churches today, dear ones, invite men to lead them without the biblical qualifications and process of evaluating a, a prospective elder. Elders in churches are so hasty, aren't, aren't we? So hasty, so often, impatient, lacking discernment, discernment. Think about it. Think about the normal affirmation process that maybe you've seen or heard of or even been a part of at some point in your life. We don't really adequately evaluate a man's background, training, ministerial experience. We don't often adequately evaluate his character, his doctrine. Do we grill these brothers? See what their doctrine is? A gifting? Their ministry skill? Do, do we evaluate their family relationships? Their work relationships? Do we go visit their workplace? See what happens there. His church relationships. So often we simply meet him on one or two Sundays, hear him give the best sermon he's, he has in his pocket, Meet him and his family for a couple of hours, and then he's the elder of the church. Is that what Paul's talking about? Think about that. Just because there's been something that we've done for so long doesn't mean that that's what Paul prescribes for us, and for good reason. Or a church and their elders may call a man to be an elder very quickly because he is influential and resourceful merely in a human sense. They don't take time to to carefully examine him according to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. Those 1 Timothy 3 qualifications include this guy's got to be wealthy, he's got to be an entrepreneur, and so on and so on. No, it doesn't, that's not there. This text warns us against doing that. You know what? God is merciful though, isn't He? He's so gracious and merciful and kind that He often provides a qualified man for a local church in spite of a lack of knowledge. 
in spite of haste. And even so, yes, God is gracious, but that doesn't mean we ought to then go to haste and move this too quickly. Let's follow the biblical process of building and maintaining a biblical eldership by the strength of the ascended Christ who's ruling by the Spirit in our hearts today. Don't be hasty in affirming a prospective elder. Number two this morning, uh, practical advice for the ministry. It's a very interesting verse. Right here in the middle of verses 22 and 24, you have 23. Paul says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. This is an interesting verse because it doesn't continue to argue what Paul's arguing. He's trying to teach us why to avoid haste. And all of a sudden, he's talking about wine. You're like, what is going on here? It seems to break that flow. But I think he's addressing something very important here. So, first of all, letter A, spiritual commitments in ministry can be a strain on physical health. Maybe this is important. It's an important part of this whole process because an elder ought to know this, this task can be can be straining. Timothy was drinking only water. It just says it there. He was was an only water drinker. How did he come to that? Well, he may have made a commitment to avoid wine completely because uh, his desire was to be above reproach. 1 Timothy 3.2, that's what, what the elders are called to. And one of the ways that they strive to be above reproach is to make sure that they could never be accused of being addicted to wine. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3. That could have been the reason why Timothy was a teetotaler. But it also could have been because Timothy made a personal spiritual commitment in the ministry of the gospel. Maybe he had taken, for some reason, a a personal Nazarite or ascetic vow of some sort where he was only going to drink water. But I think it's important just to understand that Timothy was practicing total abstinence from wine. We also need to understand that Timothy was struggling with illnesses. It just says it plainly there. You've got a stomach problem, Timothy. You have frequent ailments, Paul says here. Now, we don't know this for certain. The text doesn't clearly spell this out. But because Paul placed this practical advice in the midst of his explanations on one of the most challenging ministry processes, affirming prospective elders, that could indicate to us that Timothy's illnesses resulted, or at least were exacerbated, by the demands of the ministry there in Ephesus. We know it wasn't an easy situation. But just, just what we've learned so far in 1 Timothy, this was a tough ministry assignment. Timothy had a lot to do, and there was a lot at work against him. And so I think it's important for us to recognize here that sometimes in the life of an elder, God allows the demands of his ministry to take a toll on his physical health. Have you heard of that before? Absolutely. That was the way it was with Epaphroditus, for example, in Philippians 2. If you remember that story, the Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to deliver a special gift to to Paul in prison. And Epaphroditus, in the process of fulfilling the ministry of the Philippian church to Paul in prison, got so sick, he nearly died for the sake of the gospel. That happens sometimes. This was the way it was with the Apostle Paul. Multiple sections in the Corinthian letters bear that out. 
Paul had sleepless nights and so on and so on. I mean, just lots of physical struggle. He came to the Corinthians in weakness and fear and much trembling. And so Paul recognizes Timothy's ailments as well. Biblical eldership can, in God's providence, become very taxing on physical health. And I'm not going to spell out why that is from the Scriptures during this message, but we do need to address what Paul says to do about it. Very important to notice this. So secondly, letter B, personal health should be cared for while trusting totally in the Lord. What does Paul say to do? Don't drink wine only wine anymore. Use or only water anymore. Use a little wine. Paul writes to Timothy, be sure to treat his frequent ailments by taking a little wine. Let go of that water-only rule, Timothy. Take a little wine for your physical well-being. Now, Paul knew, and it's just common knowledge historically as well, the medicinal and purifying effects of wine. He knew that. Paul knew that and, and encouraged Timothy to make use of them. I think what we have to be careful with this verse is we have to understand that Paul is not giving Timothy or any person freedom to drink socially from this verse. That's not what this verse is about. This verse has been used for that. But that's not what this verse is about. Nor is Timothy giving uh, Paul freedom, or nor is Paul giving Timothy freedom to, to drink as much wine as he wants to simply for the pleasure of it as long as he doesn't get drunk. Again, that's not what this verse is about. Not at all. This verse, verse is about the purifying and medicinal effects of wine. And Timothy needed its, value, its valuable properties for his stomach and his ailment. It's really that, that simple. Now, the Scripture doesn't say you can't have a glass of wine, for example. I want to make that clear. But every time Paul talks about wine in his epistles, he warns of its abuses. For example, Romans 14.21 Ephesians 5.18, 1 Timothy 3.8, Titus 2.3. Those all talk about the abuses of wine and warning against them. But the focus of this text is on the medicinal and purifying effects and, and to use it to support more than just that would be a misuse of this text. So I think there's a couple of important lessons that we can learn from this little verse. First, here's something to think about. We must not let legalistic rules prevent us from doing those things that may be helpful as long as we're not causing another brother or sister in Christ to stumble into sin. That's all I'm going to say about that, but think about that. That verse could help us with that understanding. Secondly, more to the point of the text, even with the many pressures of ministry, it's important to take care of our bodies, is it not? Our physical health. We must not ignore illnesses as we minister to one another. We should seek to take care of our bodies and treat our illnesses as long as we do so righteously and trust the Lord as we do so. Because sometimes He wills for us to be well. Sometimes He wills for us to be sick. It's really in God's hands. Whatever He decides is, is best for us and for His glory. And think of it this way. We don't set our hope in human doctors, right? We're not to set our hope in them or medicine or even daily physical care of our bodies like diet and exercise and rest. And We're not even to hope in health itself. Where do we set our hope for all these things? 
in the Lord. Right? He's the sustainer. He's the creator. And, and if He desires to give us health, He will. But if He desires to cause us to have weakness, to allow us to have weakness, we can even submit to Him with that. But I think it's important that we respond to our weaknesses and illnesses by caring for our bodies. That's what, that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Take care of your body. It's under some strain right now. Take care of your body. And we can do that in obedience because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about it this way. If the Lord chooses weakness for us instead of health, even then, by His grace, we must learn to follow Him in His strength in spite of our weaknesses. And, and, and let His strength take us as far as His will has planned for us. Sometimes physical events in our lives will redirect our plans, won't they? We may have something planned, but it won't necessarily be what God has planned for us. Paul says, to live is Christ, and to what? To die is gain. That's the big picture, isn't it? For we have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. In the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave Himself for us. Now finally this morning, Paul comes back to, this, to, the main, to the main argument. Why are we to avoid haste in the process of affirming a prospective elder? Not only because of shared responsibility, but finally this morning, number three, because the process and time will be revealing. This is verses 24 and 25. Notice them with me again. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. Verse 25, So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The biblical process of evaluating a prospective elder that Paul is recommending for us through this letter of 1 Timothy, and adequate time to observe a man's character, to get to know him very well, will reveal. Those things will reveal, by God's design, whether or not the Holy Spirit has chosen him to be an elder in a local church. We use this saying, time will tell, right? That's important. That's what Paul's saying. Time will tell. Give it time. Trust the Holy Spirit to reveal him in time. And remember, our timetable isn't the same as the Holy Spirit's. Probably most often. Trust him. Trust his time. Time will tell. And so to explain this principle, Paul makes a kind of contrasting parallelism between verses 24 and 25. Let's look at the first one. Letter A. A, sinful, a man's sinful deeds will be revealed sooner or later. That's what he's saying in verse 24, very simply. The sins of some people are conspicuous. Goes before them even into judgment. The sins of others appear later. Some people's sins are obvious. Sometimes people's sins are more obvious to other people than they are to them, right? And the fact that the sins of some are so obvious, Paul kind of says it in this way. You ever heard that phrase, the reputation precedes them? Like you know who they are before they get there. In other words, before you know him very long, you can see obvious reasons to overlook a man for the eldership. It's not difficult to make a human judgment as to whether or not a man is qualified for eldership if his sin is on the surface. 
You can discern enough of His character just by listening to His words and observing His life. It doesn't mean that that man will never be an elder. It's just not right now anyway. Right? Some people's sins are very obvious right on the surface. It's not difficult to evaluate or discuss His fitness for the eldership with the other elders because His sinful deeds are right out in the open. They are, as Paul says, conspicuous. And that's not really the, the guy that, that Paul is concerned about. It's that last phrase in verse 24. Let the sins of others appear later. Don't hurry through the evaluation and observation of a prospective elder because not everyone's sins are obvious. That's really what Paul is getting at. That's really important. Some people keep their sins hidden very well. We all struggle with sins. Yes. But a man is getting ready to, to desire the office of an elder. He has to qualify, right? First Timothy 3. Some people are very good at hiding their sin. Sin that would disqualify them. The sins of some appear later, Paul says. After some time for evaluation and observation and consideration, their disqualification will be seen. So the church of Jesus Christ must not be hasty. Be committed to the biblical process. Let's be committed to that together. You know, we, we might have different desires that work at different speeds. Let's be committed to what Paul is, is, is laying out here. Be committed to patience and diligence and discernment. To prayerful dependence upon the Holy Spirit of, of, of the ascended Christ to lead us. And then Paul brings in the second part of the contrasting parallelism, which is so very interesting to me. Very helpful. We tend to weigh, put more weight on the, on the verse 24, and, and, and maybe that should have more weight, but also this, this other side of the parallelism is very important. Let it be, a man's good deeds will be revealed sooner or later. You see, it's not just sins that we're to be careful not to overlook in the, in the process of affirming a potential elder. We must be careful not to overlook by haste the good deeds of a man who is qualified. Isn't that interesting? Have you, have you put thought into that part of the process? Some men's good works are conspicuous. Right? Paul uses that word again. Some men's good works are conspicuous. Their godly character is very evident. Their ministerial gifts are very plain. Their doctrine is sound. You can hear it when they talk. You can see it in his life. You can observe it in his family. That kind of man must still be evaluated, observed, and considered. But the decision may be easier because the calling of the Holy Spirit upon his life is so obvious, it's clear, it's conspicuous. However, this is, where, this is the important part of the verse here. Not all godly qualified men are that easy to identify. Let's take this to heart here. Some men's, goods de some men's good deeds are more private. I've begun to learn that a little bit over the course of time. You might meet somebody and they don't really say a whole lot. They're not, they're not wearing everything out on the sleeve. But then you take time to get to know them and you're like, wow, that person's faith is far deeper than I ever understood when I first met them. Have you, have you had that experience? That's what Paul's talking about here. Some men's godliness is more quiet. Some men's gifts and sound doctrine require more attention and diligence to observe. 
Therefore, again, careful patience, diligence, discernment in the observation, evaluation process will help us not to overlook a qualified man who will be a great spiritual blessing to the body of Christ if he's recognized and given that responsibility. In fact, think of it this way. He will likely be a humble, kind, discerning, gentle, wise shepherd. That's what you want. That's what God wants. Haste can cause us to ordain a man that is not qualified. Haste can cause us to overlook a man that is qualified. If given the time and process, the good deeds of a qualified man will not stay hidden. They cannot remain hidden. I like that too. Do you see that? They're not able to remain hidden. Cannot remain hidden. In other words, if God has planned that a man's good works will include the service of a biblical eldership, He's ordained that for them from before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 2.10. That's what they're going to do. We can't stop it anyway. We will see it. We will recognize it. Trust God's sovereignty in that process. But do not be hasty to affirm a prospective elder. As we close this morning, I want to give you some summary statements about verses 24 or 25 that are drawn from a couple of the commentators that I studied. I think, I think they will be helpful to you as they were to me. Human beings are usually different than the way they appear at first sight for better or worse. The good and the bad comes out in time. Attractive personalities often have hidden weaknesses and unprepossessing people often have hidden strengths. With people, remember the iceberg principle. What you see out in the open is only one-tenth of what is truly there under the surface. That is often true of both sins and good deeds as well. As time reveals sin, so time reveals godliness. With haste, a godly man may be overlooked, just as with haste, a sinful man may be affirmed. Discern between the seen and unseen, the surface and depth, the appearance, and the reality. Dear ones, what we need more than anything is the enabling grace of the ascended Christ to fill us, enable us, open our eyes, give us the passion to go through the process that He ordains for us so that we can really see who He has chosen and that they would be gathered to lead God's church and multiplied and sent out to even start other churches in our community. Let's be praying and diligent about these things for the good of the church and the glory of Christ. Do not be hasty to affirm a prospective elder. Before I pray this morning, I want to talk to you if you do not know that you have eternal life. Do you know that? You have eternal life? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that you are a child of God? Listen to this verse. It's a well-known verse. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, do you know why people die? 
Do you know why people die every day? The Creator God told the first man that if he disobeyed his will, he would die. The day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And what happened? That first man did. He ate of the tree. He disobeyed God's will. And he died. You see the first graveyard in Genesis chapter 5. And he died. And he died. God's word always proves true. Death is the payment that God gives to us because of our sin. Just the reality of death in the world is a proof that we are sinful. And God is truth. Do you know that you are sinful like the rest of us? Do you know that you've broken God's law? Do you see your sinfulness for what it is? And do you know what kind of death is coming to you if you don't repent? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's eternal separation from God. Remember what happened in the beginning when when Adam and Eve sinned? God sent them out of the garden from His presence. And that would be their condition forever were it not the grace of God. And that would be our condition forever apart from the grace of God. Separated from the love of God and abiding under the wrath of God. Romans, or John 6, or John 3.36 says that so clearly. But do you know what the gift of God is? The verse says so. The gift of God is eternal life. To know God and enjoy Him forever. That's the gift of eternal life. The greatest experience that the human being can know is to be in relationship with God, to enjoy His many attributes, not only in this life, but forever. But do you know how to get it? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We receive that gift of eternal life by receiving Christ and resting in what He did to give us eternal life. See, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life to cover us with His goodness and fit us to stand before the eyes of God. Jesus Christ died on a cross to receive our guilt and to receive all the punishment that we deserve for our sin. That's what the cross is all about. God giving Jesus the death that we earned. We trust in Christ's resurrection to give us eternal life, to raise us from the dead, because we can't do any of these things for ourselves. So I urge you this morning, if you don't know that you have eternal life, to turn from your sin, to turn from trying to save yourself in any way or be good enough for God, and to trust in Christ alone, to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. And rest in what He did to make you right with God and give you eternal life. That is how you can know. Christ is a good and sufficient Savior. Let's stand together and we'll pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we have come to the end of this section in 1 Timothy to help us as a church to learn how to to deal with elders and all the challenges that that can bring, but all the joys as well. Father, we pray that You would seal these truths to our heart, fill our hearts with the passions of this text. Help us to connect the dots, to see how this text 
affects the life of the church, our understanding of the gospel, our effectiveness in the community, our growth in Christ-likeness, and so many other things in specific. And ultimately, for your glory. Father, there's just such a tension between who we are, what we are able to do, and what you call us to do. We find ourselves looking at these texts with such a feeling of weakness and inadequacy and failure. And so we run to Christ again. We look to Him who is seated on the throne, who is reigning, who is interceding for us and advocating for us and is our righteousness. And we want to be His church. We want Him to build us up. We don't want there to be any human explanation to what goes on in our local body. We want it to be all a work of God because we want You to be glorified. We want to see Your people rejoicing. We want to see unbelievers born again, saved through the Word of the cross. Father, we ask You to do this. And we ask You to save and sanctify this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.